You're listening to a Scottish Poetry Library podcast. I'll start with a poem about the 19th century novelist Catherine Crow. She's not particularly well known today as a novelist, but unfortunately she she suffered perhaps a, a breakdown or perhaps a sort of spiritual influence that suggested that she would be invisible as long as she took all her clothes off. And um, if she carried her calling cards in her handkerchief, then this would be fail-safe. Um, <laughs> so, but unfortunately, this, this, I mean, the gossip about this sort of spread, you know, everywhere. I mean, I think it was one of um, Dickens' favourite <laughs> after-dinner stories. So anyway, um, but it was in uh, a night in February in, in Edinburgh that she... Um, she had this this moment. So this is called um, Catherine Crow's Undoing. She unpacks the trousseau of herself, bonnet first. The sateen ruffles come apart at her light touch, spilling her mind. Next, her hair unravels in the sunshine, spitting pins. Her bone-white collar tumbles to the mud, the course of hooves. She looses the microclimates of pagoda sleeves, disperses confidential heat. The undersleeves, which together formed a soft embrace, eased to handshakes, mere acquaintances. Falling like a curtain at the overture, her overskirt is made immaterial. The farthingale stands of its own accord. Her bloomers wilt. She snaps the corset open, hook from eye, disclosing much more than strict baleen should countenance. She sheds the loosened skin of her chemise. A neighbour pauses en route to buying gloves, takes pains to notice nothing on this ordinary day. Miss Crow stands shivering, invisibility achieved, but sensible to two remaining needs. A white lace handkerchief, should she sneeze or cry. Her calling cards to tell where she has been. Hello and welcome to another episode in the Scottish Poetry Library's podcast series. My name is Colin Waters and I'll be your host for the next 30 minutes. Today we're catching up with Penny Boxall, winner of the 2016 Edwin Morgan Poetry Award and the 2018 Miss Lexia Poetry Book Society Poetry Competition. She's the author of two collections, Ship of the Line and Who Goes There, both of which were published by Valley Press. She was born in 1987 and grew up in Aberdeenshire and Yorkshire. We spoke earlier this year and at the time of the interview she was development manager at Shandy Hall, Lauren Stern's house in the North York Moors. Jackie Kay, who was one of the judges the year that Boxall won the Edwin Morgan Poetry Award, said of her poetry, Penny Boxall runs a tight ship. Her poems are beautifully crafted. Reading her is to go on an interesting journey of exploration stopping at fascinating places along the way. She has a curator's mind and is always putting one thing beside another in an unexpected way. Penny came into the library where she spoke about poems about Inspector Morse, crows who give love tokens, and a 19th century eccentric who thought she became invisible when she took her clothes off. The new collection features a number of characters with memorable jobs, or perhaps more accurately, memorable twists on jobs. So you've got a fisherman who can no longer go to sea who creates embroideries, tapestries which show sea scenes. And then there's the hermit-like figure who lives in a kind of artificial wilderness. 
not that being a hermit's a job, but a rule perhaps. <laughs> well, it was. Yeah. It was a job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could actually, you know, become a hermit if you looked in the right papers. How do you get um, to become one? <laughs> I think, bizarrely, you, you apply. I mean, <laughs> it seems rather strange, but yeah, a lot of the kind of um, the stipulations were quite quite exacting. So, yeah, uh, it always seems like quite an appealing job to me. <laughs> well, as a poet, it's a kind of yeah. job to be a hermit, yeah, isn't yeah. it? Or, or anchorite or something like <laughs> that, somewhere where you're mirrored and don't have to put up with people asking you to pay for um, bills and stuff like that. What attracts you about these characters who, you know, have taken these roles that we, we, we think we know, like a fisherman or a hermit, but there's some odd twist to it. What, what, what brings you to those sort of roles? Yeah, well, I, I've worked for museums for um, several years and it's, I've had some quite interesting jobs, which has been really nice. So I worked um, for the Royal Collection for a while, so I was based at um, Holyrood oh, um, Palace yeah. for a couple of weeks one summer, which was fantastic. I was working with tapestries. The idea of of strange places and, and how we define ourselves by work is kind of interesting to me, especially when I work a lot with objects in museum contexts. Um, so it was, it was really about, how, yeah, self-definition and also um, the museum world tends to be very short-term contracts, so you have to move on quite a lot. Um, and so you sort of just get comfortable in a place and then suddenly you find you need to find something else. So quite a lot of that is about redefining yourself against the, the circumstances you find yourself in. And I, I suppose it probably has something to do with travel and non-fixedness of location as well, which I'm very interested in. So I think all those things just feed in. I'm, I'm currently working at Lawrence Stern's house in, in the North York Moors, and, and that's a really fascinating place because it's full of 18th century wonder. I mean, it's, it's a medieval building in, in, um, in the main, but it's, um, it's got additions that Stern himself added, and it's, it's a very beautiful and unusual place. And so I think I've found that in the museum world, there's actually quite a lot of opportunity for, for play and for, for thinking about the self and about objects in, in their contexts. And it's just something that's always fed my, my poems, I guess. I'm really fascinated by the difference between the self and the other and about how you imagine yourself into someone else's shoes. So I guess with um, the male embroiderer, John Crask, I was thinking about... He's a real um, person. He though. was, yeah. I was just thinking about the, the circumstances that led him to embroidery. I mean, it was an unusual choice. And that poem in particular is written in the voice of a sort of disapproving fisherman um, <laughs> ancestor of him, um, who I've completely made up. It, it's about sort of expectation and how we can how we can change that, I guess. I was going to save till the end a question about your um, your work at um, Lauren Stern's... Is it a cottage or just a house? Um, um, it's a parsonage, so it's... Um, yeah, it's... it's <laughs> <Of course>. a, <laughs> yeah, it's... Um, oh, gosh, I'll, I'll get my history in a muddle here, but it's, I think, a medieval great hall that's been, you know, as I, as I say, sort of added to and ameliorated in various ways, but it's... It's in these beautiful gardens and it, it just doesn't feel like the 21st century at all there. It's, it's something very special. Um, so yeah, I've been there um, just under a year now. And you worked at um, Wordsworth's I did, yes. Well. Yeah, Dove Cottage. Yeah, so I was an intern there in 2010, I think. You weren't intimidated by being in the presence of, you know, the great poets? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I mean, it was fantastically stimulating as well, because every couple of weeks in the summer, there'd be 
some fantastic poet reading in in the church at Grasmere, and it was it was just an amazing place. I think it gave you unrealistic expectations about how mm. <laughs> how life was, because it was just so full of of wonderful opportunities and poetry. Yeah, that was really one of the most productive years I've experienced so far. It was great. Yeah, I was reading you were you were living with Rebecca Wall. Yes. You were yeah. Flat sharing. Yeah. High sharing. Uh, I mean that's. Must be fantastic when you're just starting out writing, po- or not just starting out, but you're just sort of developing towards your first collection. And you're you're living with another accomplished poet. Yeah. And you can really yeah. get an interesting time. I mean, I think half the time, being a writer is is about you know circumstance and luck and, and meeting the right people. I don't mean necessarily people who are publishing publish you. I mean people who can you know like Kerouac bumping into Allen Ginsberg or you know people or Wordsworth and Coleridge in fact. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was extremely lucky in Rebecca as a housemate because we've we've got a very good friendship and and I think we're interested in in very similar things. Um, although I think we treat them in quite different ways in our writing. So that's been a really, I mean. A wonderfully fun friendship but also a fruitful one so we um we exchange writing every Wednesday and it's something that's been going on for years now and I, I really value her, her work as an editor so yeah it was <laughs> it was lucky um and also when we were there um there was Emma Jones was um put in residence first and then Helen Mort came part way through the year as well so you know you just have wonderful people to Absolutely. chat to and yeah get to know. Shall we hear a poem? So this is the one about John Crask, um, the fisherman. Well, the not fisherman, the embroiderer. No work for a man, this endless redoing, this close work, this stump work, this cruel. Pins are for pinning, for sticking and fixing the thorax, the eye-brightened wing, for forcing through maps, for defining a front. Pins are for bearing up bones when you smash through a fence on a yes, on a hairpin. Pins means her legs, and that's all there is to it. Needles are blood letters, drug pushes, Christmas, the spark between silence and song. Hide needles in hayricks and think yourself lucky you're not the one looking. You're too busy coaxing the shape-shifting camel to go where it's told. But boy, above all, you're not bloody sewing. Nails are for nailing and shoeing and roofing. Nails are for boots and the cross. Silks are for weddings, for small clothes, for secrets, for never you minds and not for your eyes. No business with silks, with unravelling skeins, with spooling, with winding, with twist versus floss. And man, you're a piece of work anyway. Consider your beard, your pièce de résistance, your tangling mass, your miraculous haul. It's thick with the threads that you spun for yourself, that you wove, though you didn't know how. So the new collection's called Who Goes There? It sounds kind of sort of like a... I don't think paranoid's the right word, but sort of like, you know... Um, well, kind of like, you know, it's the sort of thing a sentry would show, isn't it? Yeah. Who Goes There? I think paranoid maybe is right. <laughs> yeah, slightly paranoid. Well, also, I mean, there's this, the short story Who Goes There, which was the basis of the film The Thing, which is about a, shape, a shape-shifting alien. We don't have to go into the details of it. But it, just, it was an interesting title to me. It sounded almost sort of like... Um, you know, uh, like I say, sort of um, trying to keep people at arm's length or, or you know, trying to sort of figure something out. What, what was your thinking behind the, the, the title? Well, I wanted something quite... I wanted a whole phrase, um, and I wanted something that 
wasn't quite sure of itself either. Mm. You know, it's quite, as you say, it's quite a demanding quite... It's, it's being asked of someone, but it's, it's because of um, insecurity and not, not knowing. Mm. I mean, you have this image of a, a sort of, as you say, a sentry in the dark, not being able to see um, who's coming by. So I suppose it all feel, feeds back into this idea of self-reflection and, and self-definition. Um, but also, I think, because there are a lot of historical characters and um, in, in the collection um, and about how, how we really try and understand who they are. I mean, I've taken such liberties with all these historical mm. characters. You know, most of them are based on, on real people. And you sort of think that's a bit of a liberty to take, isn't it, to, to try and imagine someone else's um, interior life. But I also think... It's really good fun. So, yes. <laughs> you know, why not? <laughs> but the, the interesting thing you touched already with your poem about the, the naval embroiderer is that very rarely is it just a straightforward account of a historical character. There's always some kind of twist in it. So you have a disapproving ancestor or descendant, um, whichever you want to phrase it, um, thinking about that one and the other historical characters as well. You, you never quite just give a straightforward ode. Or <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wonder if I need a psychoanalyst to tell me why that is. It's, it's not something I necessarily set off to, to do. It's mm. just I, I quite like having an odd camera angle um, or even a mirror between the camera and the person for some reason. I think David Lynch called it like the duck's eye view of a room where they never duck, they have the <laughs> eyes inside of their head and they look, they look yeah. that way instead of that way. People um, listening to the podcast, <laughs> you'll be fascinated by my finger pointing. <laughs> maybe you get a sense of an idea. You, you know, you don't. If you're an artist, you don't take the straightforward approach to something. You have to have the duck's eye view of it. Yeah. No, I. I that's yeah. I like that. I'm yeah. <laughs> going to think about that and also look at ducks in a completely different way. <laughs> Quite. So, how would you describe the sort of the the journey from your first to your second collection? Do you feel your collection have different characters? Um, I think there is more of me in the second collection. I think I was almost. Um, well, if if this is duck's eye, then I don't know if the last one might be hawk's eye. I do feel like there's more more distance between the the subjects and and me in the first collection. But I also think there are similarities in. I mean, I'm interested in what I'm interested in, I yes. suppose. So that's going to be informed by the past and various places, you know, particular places, and also um, kind of specific moments. I think I'm quite interested in the snapshot rather than the the film. Yeah, I mean, it, it feels like a a development, I suppose, of of things that I was interested in in, in the first book. Mm. A couple of the poems, um, I, I don't know if I'd call them religious poems. Uh, but I think there's an interest in, in religion or the history of religion. Um, so I'm thinking of the poems like the animal trials. Is it this, the history of it that interests you, or do you have a spiritual side? How does that, that work? How do you negotiate that? For about three years, I found myself working in a church in Oxford, which was very unexpected. I'm, I'm not religious. I, I suppose I would say I have a spiritual side. I, I don't have a religion. And I sort of I, I ended up with this job which turned out to be an absolutely fantastically rich source of inspiration and it was a brilliant place to work. I've sort of always been interested in, in the place that the church has in the social life of, of a town. And so when I found myself as a sort of non-believing outsider within the church community, I, I think that, that added something 
kind of that I found I return to quite a lot in my writing because it's it's quite an unusual position to be in, I suppose. Mm. I mean, you know, you sort of there are all sorts of reasons for turning up in a church, but it, I suppose it's perhaps more unusual for a, a non-believer. I mean, I was fantastically welcomed by by the church. They were a brilliant group of people to work with, but there was this, you know, I always had this sense of do I have a right to be here when mm. it's not, you know, when it's not necessarily for people with no religion. Um, So, yeah, I suppose there are a few um, poems in the book about seeing this church world at a slight remove again. Also, I mean, I'm interested in the numinous and and the sense of wonder that that lots of things can inspire in, in me. So whether that's a particular landscape or a sense of connectedness with someone from the past, I think those things might have commonalities with with a spiritual experience. It was it was sort of just seeing this thing a bit askance, I guess. Mm-hmm. This is visitation. May and the vestries plagued with them, little detachments raising and reinterring like defective Lazaruses. I clock the underbelly of a chair diffused by busy mouthparts, wool erased with two years blind hunger that halts at man-made fibre. The priest calls for intervening forces, men in overalls who will raise the stakes and blast the suckers dead. Fifty centigrade, as hot or more so, we agree, than hell. I watch one inch under the cope chest and resolve. The van arrives quiet, orderly. They disable smoke alarms, fill the offices with fumes. Once white vestments relinquish their secrets. The whole affair's in disarray, wedding records toppling ecclesiastic silver, lost property bunched round files of chrism. The act itself only takes a minute. Regardless, come Monday the critters are still calling from the cracks, and not only are intended, the methods universal. Behind the door, a cohort of silverfish lies gasping on the lino, Antenna pivoting, as if still expecting rescue, still hoping for a miracle. One of the things I really liked about the second collection is, is a theme that I liked was this sort of recurring interest in artifice or artificing. And the two poems I'm particularly thinking about are the one about Operation Mincemeat and Oxford Exterior Day. Uh, they seemed quite, they're quite close to each other in the collection, mm. and they seem kind of, in my mind anyway, twinned. I, I'm really interested in Operation Mincemeat because A, it's really interesting, and B, have you ever seen the film The Man Who Never Was? I haven't. No, it's <laughs> terrible. I need to, I need to watch that film. <laughs> well, I mean, that's kind of what that your poem's yeah, yeah. about. So, um, for anyone listening who doesn't know what Operation Mincemeat was, very briefly, it was intelligence operation by... Or disinformation strategy, I think, is... Thank you, yeah. much better. <laughs> in which um, British intelligence services uh, dropped a body into... Was it the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of Spain? Yes. I'm sure there's military historians <laughs> bristling as I incompetently relate the story of this. But basically... They, they, they dropped a body in the ocean. It was a homeless chap. They planted on the body documents to make the uh, the Germans think an invasion was in the offing and they were trying to make the Germans think they were going to invade via Greece when in fact they were planning to invade via Italy. Is that the case? I think so. I mean, my, my grasp of the history yeah. was rather loose. So I sort of, you know, 
Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was this fantastically convoluted idea. And in fact, I know the commanding officer, when he was writing various ideas for dis- disinformation strategies, um, wrote this at the bottom and he wrote, an idea, not a very nice one. And then he wrote, yeah. put all this idea and it, it worked, which is just the most extraordinary thing, I think, of all of it. This poem is um, in the voice of um, his invented fiance, so yeah. it's just like another layer of confusion and complexity in this story. So, yeah, they invented a whole life for this guy so that he'd be believable as a Royal Marines officer, including um, Pam, a fiancé. So he had a picture of Pam and letters from her and he was carrying all sorts of documents, well, not documents, a pocket litter about, you know, places they'd been together, um, theatre trips and so on. And Pam was a girl working in the office who, who they, you know, took a photo of. But then, even more strangely, the commanding officer and she began a relationship and it all... Oh, yeah, it was just so, so confusing. Yeah, these sort of layers of, of artifice, as you say, I think it's, it's just interesting about when we're trying to untangle the story of our own lives, that's, that's sort of interesting and, and confusing enough when, you know, perhaps someone else... You have a shared memory with someone else who remembers it slightly differently or remembers different details or sometimes gallingly can't remember a whole thing that you're sure happened. But when you're sort of building another narrative into your life, um, as, as <laughs> inverted commas Pam does, it's just, you know, where, do, where does the self stop and the adopted character begin? And it's um, a bit convoluted I think but um, it's certainly something that I I just seem to keep returning to. I suppose it's a a kind of interest in in theatre. I've (laughs) believe me never been any sort of actor or um, you know any kind of performer but that kind of the way you change on on a stage I think is is something that I can't get away from. And then in Oxford Exterior Day as well you stumble across I guess they were filming a detective. It's Morse. It's always Morse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I thought it was that Morse or Endeavour or yeah. those kind of things. Yeah. And that's a strange moment where sort of reality telescopes, I guess, where you where you have this strange scene, but also kind of familiar because you've seen this on television so many times. And um, I'm not surprised it sparked a poem because you, you sort of feel yourself in this sort of earthbound vertigo don't you yeah. I, I, I think the same thing happened to me as well I've walked past James McAvoy on the way to work <laughs> uh, who's doing the film Filth and I kind of, sort of thought what's going on here yeah. you don't normally walk past James McAvoy you have that awful moment where you think you know them as well mm. like, oh, oh no <laughs> yeah that's, that is weird because he, he was just standing having a fag and I walked straight past him and I had a certain moment where I kind of, sort of thought that's James McAvoy, <laughs> ah, what's going on? I had a very weird moment where I arrived in... My sister lives in the States, and I arrived in New York um, in September to go and see her. And um, we went to Bowling Green, because I'd, I'd just read um, Golden Hill by Francis Bufford, which is just wonderful, and, and he had said, in, I think, in that novel, that Bowling Green is the last bit of 18th century New York that mm. you can go and see. So we thought, oh, God, have a look at it. And uh, Alan Cumming was there, and I was just oh. like, ah. <laughs> this is excellent. So I think it was, I don't know if they're still filming X-Men or something. Oh, one of those films, yeah. Yeah, it was just all a bit unlikely. So, um, so what's your own writing journey been? Um, so you've got Scottish roots. Mm-hmm. You, you were born in Scotland, is that right? Um, or did no, you move here? Uh, yeah, um, we moved when I was one. So um, I grew up in Aberdeenshire, 
well, not far from um, Inverurie, just at the foot of Benahy, and um, then uh, moved when I was 12 to Yorkshire. Not too different from Byron, really. <laughs> he was born in London and moved to Aberdeen, and when he was 10, moved back down south. Oh, right. Hmm. <laughs> I didn't know that. I'll have to look into that. Yeah, so I had a very kind and encouraging um, teacher, um, Mr Murray, who encouraged me to write poetry but, and also to apply to uh, study at UEA. Because I, I hadn't realised you could do creative writing as a degree. And um, yeah, I loved it. I, I went there and I did an undergrad followed by um, a master's in poetry and met some... Well, it's like you were saying about, you know, your, com- your compatriots in, in any particular place are, are very important. And, and the group I, I met at UEA were, yeah, really special. So that kind of made me realise that writing should be part of my routine and something that I, I was allowed to make time for, which was great, you know. <laughs> Even if you're not actively writing, just the idea of um, staring out the window or, or reading, you know, that's kind of all part of the process I think. Was that the most sort of valuable lesson of course you know allowing mm. yourself time and giving yourself the permission to write Yeah poetry. I remember um, Andrew Cowan um, in one of the first sessions we had saying uh, staring out the window is work and I just thought oh I love this. <laughs> so, I know it's indulgent but I also sort of think why not if that's what feeds it then why not indulge? <laughs> um, shall we have another poem? Uh, uh, whichever one you, you prefer yourself. I might read a positive poem about housemates because um, I, I was really lucky in Oxford to live with some really excellent women and I just thought it's something that's not quite celebrated enough actually, like a really good house share. I think it's also quite rare. So Yeah. We had a lot of tat in that house. Uh, it was mostly shell ornament related. So this is, this is called a shell family. Mum used to show me how to stack concentric cockle shells to make a crinoline lady. A blank pink cowrie for a face, her whelk breasts small and armoured, her parasol a jaunty conch. Later came the grannyish collection, a running joke on the mantelpiece. Would accrue souvenir trinkets whenever we discovered one, an owl crusted with ersatz feathers, a fat ship with sheening mother-of-pearl sails, the frog family, googly-eyed, conferring in a ring. They were part of the furniture, outrageous tackiness turning, eventually, invisible. The glitter glue and grubby bow ties didn't register until you really looked at them. And last week, I spotted the little crowd on a glass shelf, priced up for charity, which makes it even worse. So last question, you won the Edwin Morgan Poetry Award in 2016, which is for best Scottish or Scottish-based poet under 30 for a collection, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And then recently you won the Mislexia PBS Women's Poetry Competition. What's it like to win a competition? What effect does it have on your writing? Does it just keep you going in the right direction? Yeah, well, I mean, winning the Edwin Morgan was really astonishing. I, cu- I couldn't believe it. It was, you know... Um, completely overwhelming and I think what it's done is just given given me the confidence to keep on writing and to uh, I suppose take more risks in what I write Um, I mean it's such a huge boost and it's also meant I've been able to sort of take up opportunities that I wouldn't have otherwise so I've 
been lucky enough to do some residencies and things where I thought, okay, well, that is, you know, it's a bit of a leap to this job is coming to an end, but I'll leave that there and I'll go away for a month somewhere. And, and that's been fantastic. It's hard to sort of say how much of a positive impact both of those things have had on me, actually. And that just about wraps up another episode in the Scottish Poetry Libraries podcast series. Some uh, thank yous uh, before we go, as tradition dictates. So um, my first thank you goes, of course, to Penny Boxall, who came into the library. Thanks, Penny, for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, Another thank you, of course, to uh, all you people listening out there. Uh, Thanks very much for giving us half hour of your time. And thanks very much also to uh, Will Campbell, who produced the music, played the music, composed the music that you hear at the start and at the end of the show. Just before leaving, I should say that if you want to keep in touch with what the Poetry Library does between podcasts, you can of course visit our website, which has the website address of www.scotchpoetrylibrary.org.uk. We do all the social medias too. Uh, Twitter, our Twitter handle is at By Leaves We Live. We have a Facebook page. Uh, I think you just need to type in Scottish Poetry Library into the Facebook search engine. And uh, voila, you will appear at the Scottish Poetry Library's Facebook page. And Instagram, we do Instagram too. I think our handle, our tag for that is SPL Scotland. So that's it. So without much further ado, I shall say goodbye to you and leave you with one last poem by Penny Boxall. Okay, I might, I might finish on the Valentine, which um, is inspired by... Um, a story read about, a, a true story, um, of a little girl who was feeding crows out in her garden. They got to know her and would start bringing her sort of courtship gifts. So, you know, she'd put out a bit of seed for them and, and they'd, um, they'd bring her some jewellery. <laughs> really bizarre. But in this poem I've imagined that, well sort of a crow and he's sort of not but um, that she's grown up and this courtship is continued so this is the valentine a bolt that couldn't stand the test ball bearings easing nothing now a pearly heart emblazoned best its partner friends is underground a bottleneck drained of its drink an ex-balloon with no breath left a hinge without a door A sock, a gap-toothed zip, a polished rock, a battered tin, a rusted pin, a key that never knew a lock. An earthworm worried from the loam and stretched long as my arm. A baby tooth worked from the gum and seeded to my palm. A line torn from a get-well card, a hairball rested from a hedge, a gold toothpick, a mangled chick. He's rooting for my heart. Thank you for downloading this Scottish Poetry Library podcast. For further information about the Scottish Poetry Library, visit our website at www.scottishpoetrylibrary.org.uk, follow us on Twitter at By Leaves We Live, and find us on Facebook.